0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. I'm Nancy Adler, and it's both my pleasure, it's a bittersweet pleasure, to be um, hosting this with uh, Judy Moskowitz, and to welcome everyone to this symposium in honor of Susan Falkman. Judy and I had actually great fun in planning this in no small part because of the incredible response we got when we sort of put this idea out, it was gratifying how many people wanted to come. And we have people here not, I, when I'd first written my remarks, I sang saying from all over the country, but really from all over the world. People have come from far and wide to honor Susan. Susan's announcement of her intended retirement actually set up a perfect laboratory for studying stress and coping. (laughs) The situation was clearly devastating. Uh, Losing Susan's wisdom, insight, humor, uncommon good sense and calming influence affected us all. We tried problem solving coping, but Susan didn't cooperate. Uh, she, She was clear that she had some ideas of things she wanted to do and we weren't gonna change the situation. So we uh, moved to emotion-focused coping. (laughs) The first thing we tried was denial. uh, And that didn't work too well because Susan kept reminding us she really was going to retire. Then we tried reframing, and we focused on the opportunities to get together in new ways. However, nothing beats the day-in, day-out interaction we have with Susan and uh, the closeness we have with her here. She is one of the most influential thinkers in psychology Her seminal work with Richard Lazarus, Stress, Appraisal, and Coping, provided a strong foundation for the wide-ranging research on stress and coping that has followed. It's been cited over 13,600 times. A daunting figure. She's made specific contributions, including showing that coping is a process, not an outcome, differentiating problem-focused versus emotion-focused coping, and developing a measure to assess coping, The Ways of Coping questionnaire, based on her dissertation, is the most widely used coping measure in psychology. It's been translated into more than 20 languages. The symposium today focuses primarily on Susan's scientific contributions. So you'll see the panels are organized around the conceptual issues I've just described. But we also want to celebrate Susan's institution-building work, And for that, I'm going to turn this over to Judy Moskowitz.
1: So I want to just say a little bit about um, Susan's work here at the Osher Center. Um, One of the fundamental questions that sparked Susan's research and continues to drive it is how people undergoing significant stress manage to maintain their psychological and physical well-being. In 1988, Susan moved to the Center for AIDS Prevention Studies here at UCSF and began applying stress and coping theory to a study of men caring for their partners with AIDS. This was prior to the advent of effective therapies for HIV, and a large proportion of the people with AIDS died. So the UCSF Coping Project, as it was called, became a study of coping with caregiving and bereavement. That project remains one of the most influential caregiving and bereavement studies ever conducted. While at CAPS, Susan also worked with Margaret Chesney, who's here. I saw you, Margaret. There you are. To design one of the first stress reduction interventions based on stress and coping theory, coping effectiveness training, which has become the core of a burgeoning number of stress reduction interventions, particularly for people coping with HIV and other serious chronic stressors. Based on the findings from the UCSF Coping Project, in 1997, Susan revised stress and coping theory to highlight the adaptive functions of positive emotion in the coping process. The key finding that people experience positive emotion even in the midst of distress spurred a whole new generation of research into the adaptive functions of positive emotion in the context of stress. In 2001, Susan became the director of the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine here at UCSF, further extending her work into the area of mind-body medicine. With Rick Hecht and our colleagues, she has led a study about the extent to which mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR, can delay progression of HIV. Throughout her career, Susan has been a champion for social scientists at medical schools such as UCSF, and more broadly, for the necessity of including behavioral and social scientists in the interdisciplinary study of health and well-being. The growing appreciation for the contribution of social and behavioral scientists to the understanding of health and illness is due in no small part to Susan's steady support and mentorship of junior researchers. Our aim in hosting this conference is to celebrate Susan's personal and professional contributions to the field, and we expect the talks today will serve as catalysts to stimulate excitement and interest in stress and coping research, and more broadly, in the role of psychology in studies of health and illness. Now, I would like to turn things over to our first panel facilitator. So Carolyn Aldwin is professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Sciences at Oregon State University. She received her doctorate from the University of California, San Francisco, go UCSF, in 1982 and was an NIMH postdoctoral scholar in human development, environmental demands and health at the University of California, Irvine. She received a first award from the National Institute of Aging on Psychosocial Factors and Health in Aging early in her career at the Normative Aging Study, Boston's Veterans Administration, and has published over 90 articles and chapters in this area. She's a fellow of both Divisions 20, which is uh, Adult Development and Aging of APA, and 38, which is Health Psychology, as well as the Gerontological Society of America. She's the author of three books, including Stress, Coping, and Development from Guilford, Health, Illness, and Optimal Aging from Sage, and the Handbook of Health, Psychology, and Aging from Guilford Press. Turn it over to Carolyn. Thank you.
2: Good morning, everyone. Um, Our way of coping with stress is to go hiking. So I've spent the last week or so in in the Redwoods, and so my mind is there. So, um, but it's wonderful to be at this conference and to honor Susan. Our first talk is by Alex Zautra, and he is the um, Arizona State University Foundation Professor of Clinical Psychology. And Alex has been also just tremendously seminal in really um, pioneering daily diary studies in the context of arthritis in showing positive and negative effects of social support. One of my very favorite of his findings was that the type of social support matters depending upon the stage of the illness. So if you're very tight and very pushy, it's terrible if you're not very sick. But when you're very sick, having a spouse that's very controlling is a very useful thing. And so... um, and so without further ado, I will turn this over to Alex, and um, thank him for his talk.
3: I'm um, talking on resilience today, and uh, for, best characterized by Madsen, first said uh, this is an ordinary magic that's within people and uh, situations and in communities. Um, I'm speaking at a conference uh, with someone who displayed extraordinary magic, Susan Folkman, and I'm really honored to be here to be able to speak on and really talk about a concept of resilience that's really both anticipated and informed by the brilliant work that Susan has, uh, has done over the last several years. Um, let me begin by simply uh, listing a, a group of collaborators, all of whom are contributing to the, what I say today, um, and has some of them in 2005. Um, this work is one that did certainly anticipate and inform the development of resilience because in this, I think, landmark study of Susan and Richard Lazarus talked about how coping and adaptation are as valuable to study as the inners and outers of stressful experiences. And they talked about the distinctions between types of coping as well in this study. It's a marvelous piece of work and it had begun the work of studying how people adapt to stress not just how they feel when they are stressed. Um, now, I want to just give you a couple of examples of how ubiquitous c- coping is, how resilience is just an ordinary experience built within and between people. Here's some examples from, um, well, from, uh, uh, from the Gulf uh, and from Indonesia. Here's an example from... Uh, This is um, (coughs) Gregory MacDonald. He has ALS. He can only move his eyebrows. (coughs) And yet he still communicates closely with his son. Here's another example from West Virginia. This, I I think, displays that resilience goes uh, across across the boundaries of life and death here. And these people are dying from lack of oxygen, being buried deep in coal mines. And here they're still speaking to their loved ones, saying things. Just tell them I'll see them on the other side. It wasn't so bad, I just went to sleep. And I love you. The reason for this, why, I mean, they're dying. They have no reason to communicate. Yet, they wish to just tell their loved ones that they can manage and cope. That they can be resilient even beyond this particular point. Um, uh, Here's my favorite, actually. This is a Lithuanian guy. Uh, carrying book of diction- a group of dictionaries over the border because the Soviets have outlawed the Lithuanian language. Since I'm Lithuanian, I kind of have a special care okay. for this. Um, what people have begun to study is that the process by which people are able to manage um, uh, life's difficulties are quite common. Uh, George Bonanno, for example, found that over half of the bereaved show very few signs of distress, even after a month of losing a loved one. One One-third of those who lost loved ones after 9-11 showed not one PTSD symptom. Um, The capacities of people are underappreciated, often in the study of stress, and yet it's certainly a quite common phenomenon among those people outside of our own research. Now, I want to give you a brief definition of what I mean by resilience. Others have other definitions, but in this case, um, we basically look at resilience as having two common features. One is a quick capacity to bounce back from emotionally and otherwise from stressful events. That is um, recovery, recovery rapid and full. And the second major feature of resilience is sustainability, to sustain, sustain positive engagements to pursue and continue on life's purposes even in the face of chronic difficulties. Um, Resilience in the framework that we've developed here cuts across levels of adaptation from restoration of homeostasis in the body to the preservation of quality in community life. I'm going to be talking about some of these features across this talk until I run out of time, Okay, (laughs) Um, because I don't want the the music to start playing. Another one characteristic of people who are resilient and about the situations that allow people to be uh, resilient is the presence of positive emotion. And this is another example of Susan's fortifying work when she began studying positive, in this case, this positive, um, positive psychological states and coping with severe stress. In another one of her papers, Positive Affect, and the other side of coping. I think uh, Judy Moskowitz is on this paper as well. Now, the literature is now being filled with examples of how positive emotion plays a role in health and mental health. And I'm just going to give you a few to remind you of these. Many of these you already know. Uh, This is a study by, um, by Danner et al. in 2001 of the survivability or the life trajectories of nuns. And in this case, They analyzed the autobiographical essays that these nuns wrote before coming into the convent when they were in their twenties. And what they did was they analyzed the, um, a number of positive emotion sentences in those autobiographical essays, showing that they extend, that that was correlated with the length of life of the nuns in their eighties, some up to their nineties. For example, ah. (laughs) Uh, many of you, I'm sure, already know Sheldon Cohen's work on negative and positive emotional style when they gave, uh, tried to give people colds um, by putting through the, in their noses some uh, infections and then looked at the correlations between the presence of negative or positive emotional style on the, on the percentages of those who developed colds, either by objective criteria, which is how much uh, nasal congestion, or subjective criteria, how the people talked about themselves in feeling as if they were sick. Uh, negative emotional style did not predict who got colds, what the percentage was of those who got colds, but positive emotional style did. Those with a higher rate of positive emotional expression displayed um, both objectively and subjectively reports of less cold, fewer colds. Well, I'm not sure Sheldon wanted this finding, but he got it anyway. <laughs> uh, here's another example from uh, Lisa Ferdman's work on um, people who've just had a hip fracture and then looking at them over a 24 month trajectory on their walking speed. Looking at their positive and positive affect and also they charted high depressive symptoms in here showing that those with greater positive affect recovered walking speed more rapidly and sustained it over time than those who did not. So these are just examples of one quality of life Um, positive emotion, separate from negative often, that predicts health and well-being over time. And I use these as examples because, uh, well, it's kind of fun to show that it's not just the absence of distress that makes a difference in a person's life. So a cheerful heart is good medicine. Now, when we examine resilience capacities, and this is why stress and coping theory is so fundamental, The best way to examine it, or maybe the only way really to test it, is during stressful occasions. And we've done this in a number of ways, but the way we've most popularized it is through the study of everyday life. And in that way, we can chart who, over time, is best able to show capacity for resilience. And we can identify when those challenges occur, if we use daily diaries, and then look at the person's reactions day by day, And then, of course, the daily records also give us a window to modifiable factors in daily life where we can make a difference for those experiencing pain, stress, and other challenges. So, for example, we'll give them a daily diary that includes questions about events in their lives with spouse and partner, like a positive event was and is receiving a special gift, a negative, uh, stressful event, is arguing with spouse and partner. We analyze domains of um, spouse, partner, family, friends, and work as well. Each of those, in each of those domains, we ask how stressful the relations were, but also we ask how enjoyable they were. And the correlation typically between ratings of stressfulness and enjoyableness is about, well, about a negative 0.4. Okay. So although they're negatively correlated, there's still a lot of room for being in both conditions every day. So... We measure the ups and downs in daily life, and indeed, ups and downs are not described just on one continuum, but on two. These two are negatively correlated, but not perfectly. There's plenty of room to experience both negative and positive emotions, me being both delighted and stressed about this talk. People differ in the capacities for resilience and they show different attributes about this. And these domains of resilience uh, can be distinguished from those that we usually study in studying people's vulnerabilities. And this is a study by Bruce Smith and I um, in which we factor analyzed personality or person attributes on the vulnerability side, anxiety, depression, pessimism and other factors. On the resilience side positive reinterpretation and growth, active coping, acceptance, coping, purpose in life, and optimism. And we use these two factors to, to predict everyday life experiences like, this, like the daily diary uh, events I just mentioned. And so when predicting negative social interactions, daily ones, we looked at vulnerability factor and resilience factor. There, the vulnerability factor predicted the number of interpersonal stressful events reported daily, In predicting positive social interactions, however, the resilience factor was the only factor that predicted those. So again, a separable set of domains, important to investigate both to understand how people are resilient and where they're in trouble in everyday life. So uh, another way to examine people under stress is to pick populations that are in particularly stressful circumstances. In Susan's work studying people with HIV, for example, in our work, we study people with arthritis who have much chronic pain. And and on a series of studies we've done, actually like the one I just mentioned on rheumatoid arthritis, to study people with a pro-inflammatory condition that leads to all the joints in the body, perhaps, to be inflamed from time to time, and to find those joints inflamed, often reactive, to stressful circumstances. So... um, in this study we call called SARA, we're predicting a pro-inflammatory that's LPS stimulated across the laboratory conditions. Okay. <clears throat> we have baseline levels of stimulated IL-6. This pro-inflammatory condition is correlated with, we have changes in joint pain reported by the people across the laboratory condition, changes in stress. Now another factor that Howard Tennant um, introduced to our studies has been a study of depression, and in particular, um, a vulnerability factor, is recurrent depression. So we had given all these people diagnostic tests beforehand, so we were able to test, examine, and identify those with recurrent major depression. Both stress and recurrent um, depression didn't predict uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine activity, but the, co- but the interaction of the two when those people with recurrent depression were stressed, show an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokine activity, which is correlated with the reports of joint pain. But the one other factor I want to introduce is changes in positive affect reported during the laboratory experience, showing a decrease in pro-inflammatory activity correlated with positive emotion. So one of the things to keep in mind as we uh, examine this is uh, that Affect itself, the study of emotion, is influenced by the conditions under which it's studied, so that stress itself influences the experience of emotion. Stress, as we say in our model, the dynamic model of affect, narrows the range of emotional experience for most people. Positive and negative affects are less differentiated during stress, and it's important to study emotional awareness, particularly as a way that can facilitate recovery, from stress and also allow for greater sustainability of purpose during people who are, for people who are chronically stressed by whether it's pain or interpersonal difficulties. So for example, this uh, graph shows stress and affect compression for people with rheumatoid arthritis, the same sample of people showing that those with reporting high levels of negative affect have a greater or steeper gradient of correlation between positive emotion and negative emotion more a higher inverse correlation between these two emotional experiences during stressful days. So one question is how do you manage for resilience in this population and other populations and you know is a glass half empty or half full and of course it's really both. So uh, one approach we've taken I think uh, similar to the work here in San Francisco is to introduce meditation as a method for people uh, in chronic pain and uh, experienced stressful uh, life. So <clears throat> this is my favorite spot in Utah. And this is another way of be- depicting, uh, keeping the mind on the treadmill here. So we had three groups in this, in this study. <clears throat> People got traditional pain management, cognitive behavior therapy. People got mindfulness meditation um, and emotion regulation. And then a third group that got the a traditional arthritis education group, which served as our placebo control. So the components of emotional resilience here, awareness of complexity of emotion, acceptance of difficult emotions, and active regulation of our everyday emotions, are a way of allowing the person to sustain differentiation of emotion so they could continue to experience and, and, and accept and move forward with positive engaging experiences even though in pain and stress." What did we find? Uh, here's, oh, here's a quote from John Kabat-Zinn. That part of you that is aware is not itself in pain or ruled by these thoughts and feelings at all. So, um, we found in particular that those with recurrent depression were helped the most by the mindfulness intervention. <clears throat> Here the colored slide, the colored line I'm showing, is the one with mindfulness mindfulness, uh, meditation intervention for those with uh, recurrent depression, showing an increase pre and post. We found the same sort of finding, and we also extended to a six-month follow-up with Vitality from the SF36. Um, One finding not yet uh, published is we found that the mindfulness groups were less reactive to interpersonal stressors on daily life, than were either the CBT group or the education group. Here, we, by the way, we had daily diaries uh, before and after the intervention, and so this shows the during uh, days of high interpersonal stress how, how much negative affect they reported. And that gradient was less for those mindful, thinking that they were more protected, therefore more resilient in a sense from that intervention. Um, we also saw findings which I'm less sure about, but I'll report them anyway for interest. Because here is interleukin six stimulated again across a laboratory uh, stress paradigm with periods one, two, and three. And the bottom line, the red one there, is for the mindfulness group showing lower levels of uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine. And uh, particularly, the difference really are at period three, is after two stress um, inductions. Showing um, less reactivity uh, to those laboratory stressors. So these studies are supported by NIAMS. Um, and uh, they're continuing on. We're now looking at a group uh, w- with another sort of chronic pain, fibromyalgia, which uh, we think represents a group, a condition of people who have trouble being resilient altogether by showing a relative deficit in their capacity for positive emotion. I have about five minutes left, all right, and so um, I'm going to be judicious in the rest of my slides. I want to to mention the studies we're starting to do in the community now, uh, studies funded by the National Institute on Aging, which in this study we look at parallel dimensions of risk and resilience with these variables studied in a community sample of residents. Uh, middle-aged, between ages of 40 and 65, and we want to be able to see who's able to maintain health over time. And we think we'll be able to identify some of the vulnerability factors that predict poor health, but also we expect an independent uh, set of factors identifying uh, who is resilient as well. Um, And we've been able, interestingly enough, and we're really excited about this, to have applications of our concepts, and this one... uh, uh, a local foundation, St. Luke's Health Initiatives, identified <coughs> um, resilience as their major theme, and so they've launched a $5 million program in funding nonprofit health organizations uh, in the state. In this program they called Resilience Health in a New Key, uh, in which they use strength-based approaches to developing uh, ways in which to promote uh, health and uh, strength among the member- mem- participants in their in the, in the universities and the communities there. So I've got a couple minutes left to say, why community? Well, um, one is a community. Social networks matter greatly to us. Uh, in this Framingham study, loneliness spreads across networks. But happiness also spreads across networks. And the type of network matters. And here's a network of a, a school district that's highly segregated. The whites with white and the the blacks are green in this picture, and you see they don't mix well enough. And we need greater diversity, because diversity is, again, a factor that supports resilience. So there's a suburban U.S. street that we think is non-resilient because it's pretty plain and nondescript. And here's a resilient neighborhood in Mumbai where there's multiple overlapping and redundant functions in that community. So we've started community gardening projects to study the development of more resilience in urban settings. Uh, and we're also begun to study social resilience in the armed forces, because indeed, to prevent PTSD is a primary objective, and people are So soldiers can be resilient as well if they develop adequate social networks. So adversity is effective eliciting talents, in which prosperous circumstances would have lain dormant, says Horace and uh, Ralph Emmanuel. <laughs> okay, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Alex, for a wonderful talk. Um, our second speaker today is um, Karsten Roche. Um, he is Associate Professor of Psychology at Concordia University. One of the nice things about getting older is looking at uh, generation um, issues and the transmission of knowledge and um, ideas across generations. And I think of Susan and Dick as being sort of the grandparent generation, the folks who started this, and then Tracy and I and Alex and others are sort of the parent generation. And we have now a third generation of researchers Um, who are carrying on this tradition and and taking um, our ideas in ways that that we wouldn't have thought of. And and that's always really nice to see. And Karsten is um, one of the leading lights, I think, in that third generation. He does some wonderful work um, combining aging with stress and coping, which also makes me feel good, and um, has been looking a lot at... um, primary and secondary control, and how they change across the life course, but also he'll be talking today on coping with unattainable goals.
4: I'm, I'm so glad uh, that, that I can be part of this here today. Uh, it's such a great event. Uh, when, when Judy sent me the first email, I knew I want to be there. Uh, I have to be there, and our class has already started, and, uh, but without me. Uh, because I really wanted to be here uh, uh, for this uh, uh, important event. I never had the chance to, uh, to work with Susan uh, because uh, uh, I, was, uh, uh, I was growing up in different research groups and now I feel I missed the train uh, uh, somehow and I will never have uh, the opportunity. But definitely uh, the work that I'm doing has been influenced uh, so much by uh, Susan Falkman's work. Uh, what I will be talking here about uh, uh, is how, uh, what can people do if life looks like that, uh, uh, if they can further pursue important goals. Uh, and uh, Susan Falkman's work from the very beginning when I started my, my dissertation some 12 years back in Berlin was so influential for my ways of thinking, and I remember... Uh, that big pile of papers on my desk uh, for three years uh, that I had to read and go back uh, uh, and read and understand and go back uh, again, so it's a great event. Uh, Let me uh, say that uh, uh, this panel is about critical questions, and I want to answer three different questions uh, here, or tell you a little bit about what our work uh, shows. And one is uh, about uh, whether there are age effects uh, 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 for coping with unattainable goals. And Susan Falkman uh, uh, did some, some of the very early and first work on age effects uh, uh, with coping. Uh, and the second question is uh, a little bit more defining what is goal adjustment, how can we adjust goals, and is it uh, good uh, uh, for a person? Does it predict uh, uh, a subjective well-being and, and physical health? Uh, And the third question uh, is, uh, what are uh, predictors of successful goal adjustment? Uh, How do people look like uh, who are able to adjust uh, to unattainable goals and uh, to stay healthy uh, and happy uh, despite uh, these uh, constraints? Let me start by giving you a little bit uh, uh, of the theoretical background about our work Uh, uh, much of the work uh, that, that I'm doing now for 10 or 12 years is about the question whether there's anything good about quitting. Uh, and quitting has a bad reputation uh, uh, in uh, the psychological literature but also uh, in culture at, at large. There are many theories uh, uh, that, value the, uh, that uh, favor the value of persistence uh, and uh, basically... Uh, 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 argues that giving up uh, 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 can be equated with with helplessness and depression. And uh, in popular culture, uh, uh, for example, if you look at quotes... uh, uh, from Benjamin Franklin, "Energy and persistence uh, conquer all things." Or Vince Lombardi, uh, uh, "Winners quit and qu- uh, quitters, uh, uh, no, winners never quit and quitters never uh, win." Uh, that uh, sort of has been uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the dominant value in Western cultures. And don't get me wrong; uh, 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 in American football, uh, this is definitely uh, 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 true. Uh, but uh, if you look at people's uh, uh, real lives, uh, uh, it may look a little bit more different. And I think there's no one who goes uh, through a lifetime without having a goal uh, uh, or having an unattainable goal, something important uh, in their lives that they can no further pursue. Uh, from a personality and health perspective, this is important because uh, 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 confronting uh, uh, constraints with respect to your goals, not being able to make further pro, uh, progress uh, elicits uh, emotional distress, and emotional distress in turn uh, can trigger biological dysregulation, can make people uh, be more vulnerable to disease uh, and uh, eventually develop physical illness. And what's also important is are feedback loops. Uh, if you're getting sick, uh, you may face more constraints on your goals, so you're maybe entering into a downward spiral. Uh, uh, based on the experience of unattainable goals. And from a coping and self-regulation perspective, uh, it is important to note that this provides us with a tool uh, 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 that we can study how can we prevent this downward uh, uh, spiral from, from, uh, from, from developing and that may be uh, uh, the issue of adaptive uh, self-regulation uh, when people face unattainable goals. Just to give you a very brief uh, 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 idea about how uh, we think about that when people pursue their goals uh, and they face difficulty with goal attainment there are basically two different responses and the ad- adaptive value of these responses should depend on the opportunities for future success. If there are good opportunities, people should continue their effort and commitment towards the goals, should uh, try to further attain their goals, uh, which then leads to success with their goals to uh, uh, supposedly higher levels of happiness and uh, maintenance of physical health. However, if these opportunities are poor, uh, continued uh, persistence uh, may lead to uh, uh, a repeated failure and people may have to disengage from the goal may have to find new goals new meaningful activities that they can pursue uh, in life and what's important here is if they do that uh, they also continue uh, the engagement with important and meaningful goals it's just different goals uh, that they're pursuing uh, 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 then so let me turn to my first question, age effects of coping. We started to study this, uh, this model about opportunities and different modes of coping back uh, in the 1990s uh, during, uh, when I did my dissertation in Berlin at the Max Planck Institute. And uh, the main premise here was that there are age-related constraints and can make it easier uh, as it can make it more difficult to attain personal goals when people uh, uh, get older. So uh, basically in these studies, we used age as a proxy uh, for uh, opportunity. And the idea was that... Uh, coping that facilitates goal adjustment, such as positive reappraisals, for example, that they may contribute, uh, that this sort of coping may contribute to subjective well-being in old age, while continued persistence may uh, become less and less adaptive when people uh, get older. Uh, Now, ten years later, there there are a number of studies that show uh, uh, support for this notion, and I just want to show you uh, uh, the results from one study that we published uh, uh, in psych and aging in two thousand, uh, uh, where we looked at, uh, at at the adaptive value of persistence versus positive reappraisals across age groups uh, uh, with respect to associations with uh, well being there from a large national probability sample from the United States, three and a half thousand uh, uh, subjects and what you see is as people get older, the adaptive value of positive reappraisals increases, and the adaptive value of persistence uh, declines uh, across uh, uh, So there are age effects uh, of coping. Uh, Other coping mechanisms uh, become uh, more important as people get older. Let me come to the second question. I think that's important uh, because so far I talked about different uh, uh, coping tactics, but this is not goal adjustment. It's not that uh, uh, positive reappraisals, other uh, self-protective processes. It's not necessarily a goal adjustment. It may protect the emotions. So the question was... uh, 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 how can we define the adjustment of personal goals and then study uh, the effects. And I did that uh, uh, starting in uh, some eight, nine years ago when I did my postdoc in uh, Vicki Harrison's department at Carnegie Mellon University working with Mike Shire. And what we did, we started defining goal adjustment and we thought that there are two different processes involved. First, when people face an unattainable goal, they need to Disengage from the unattainable goal. And in addition, they need to find and engage uh, uh, into new uh, meaningful activities. And we also defined uh, the specific motivational components uh, of uh, goal disengagement and goal reengagement. We thought that to disengage, you need to withdraw both effort and commitment from the goal. And to uh, uh, reengage in new goals, you have to be able to identify new goals, you have to commit to these uh, new goals, and you have to to start pursuing these goals and in terms of uh, the adaptive effects here the main uh, benefit of goal disengagement is that it prevents accumulated failure experience when you face an unattainable goal uh, the main benefit of goal reengagement is that it provides purpose uh, uh, for living it gives you a new purpose where you can direct energy I want to mention that there are secondary effects theoretically seen of these two uh, 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 modes of uh, of coping. uh, Disengagement can Provide resources uh, for other activities. If you give up on a goal, you have more resources that you can invest. And re engagement uh, may uh, reduce thoughts and f- uh, uh, feelings about failure. So if you have an unattainable goal, you do not necessarily disengage, but you do other new things that can uh, reduce and override some of the negative emotions associated with blocked uh, goals. In order to study this, we developed a short scale, uh, 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 the uh, goal adjustment scale, 10 items, 4 items for goal disengagement, 6 items for goal reengagement. And uh, uh, the two subscales are uh, highly reliable, that's what the research shows, and only uh, weakly correlated uh, uh, with each other. Uh, and we asked people uh, uh, to respond to these items uh, with respect to the question, if I have to stop pursuing an important goal in my life. I want to say at this point, when we developed this uh, this scale, I was still very much influenced by contextual models coping, and we started doing this research by asking people about different types of unattainable goals, to respond to the same items across different types of unattainable goals, and it turned out uh, that there was uh, high correlations between the different types of unattainable goals, and the effects were identical, leading to the conclusion that there may be something stable within a person, a tendency how people react when they face blocked goals that could influence... uh, Uh, adaptive outcome, which is a little different from contextual models of coping, that there may be something stable, something a little bit more dispositional that people uh, apply uh, across different uh, situations, and that's what this goal adjustment scale uh, is measuring uh, people's general goal adjustment capacities. Short summary of studies that uh, have been done uh, uh, over the past uh, six, seven years with respect uh, to this construct, and they are not only done by, by ourselves, also by other researchers. With respect to subjective well-being, there is, uh, that we find or other people also find differential effects uh, uh, what uh, that means is that being able uh, to disengage from unattainable goal seems to reduce negative aspects of subjective well-being, like negative affect... And uh, being able to find, re-engage in new goals uh, increases positive aspects of subjective well-being associated with purpose and uh, positive emotions. Uh, and most of the studies, there are cross-sectional and longitudinal studies, uh, show that uh, goal re does not predict negative affect uh, and goal disengagement does not predict positive affect. There are some inconsistencies, uh, 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 For example, if you look at perceived stress, you find benefits uh, from both capacities, but I have to, uh, or you know that probably, measures like uh, Sheldon Cohen's perceived stress scale are sort of a hybrid. They include positive and negative items, like I feel stressed and I feel on top of things. So given that, it's not very surprising that you find effects of uh, of both uh, 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 measures. So a summary about uh, physical health becomes much more clear. Uh, The studies, uh, longitudinal and uh, uh, cross-sectional studies, uh, show that people who are uh, able to uh, give up on unattainable goals, that they uh, uh, report fewer health symptoms, they have more efficient sleep, they have lower cortisol level, uh, and they have better uh, immune functioning. And there are no health effects as main effects so far from goal re-engagement want to show you a little bit data uh, uh, about uh, these studies. Uh, I did the study uh, at Concordia University when I started looking at students across one semester, and those of you uh, who uh, have much contact with students probably had the experience that across the semester negative emotions increase uh, uh, among uh, students. And that's what we found, but not for everyone. Those who were able to disengage from unattainable goals, they did not show this increase in negative emotions uh, over time. Then we predicted health problems at the end of the semester, and we found uh, the same effects of goal disengagement for uh, the uh, uh, occurrence of health problems at the end of the semester, health problems like uh, diarrhea, constipation, migraine, headaches, uh, those uh, students who had difficulty disengaging, uh, they showed these health problems, and they also had much less efficient sleep. Uh, finally, what is very important or what is most important uh, for me with respect to this, now if we uh, ran some mediation analysis, the changes in, in, in negative emotions that I just showed you totally explain these effects, uh, which uh, makes them consistent with the theoretical model. Well, this engagement prevents uh, negative emotions, uh, and that may be uh, uh, associated uh, with physical health problems. So next question here was uh, how can these... Uh, health effects, physical health effects, or cure, what are the mediators, and we looked into biological functioning, and we found uh, a very similar uh, uh, results, for example, in an adult sample looking at diurnal cortisol across uh, d- uh, different days, uh, we found that uh, uh, the capacity to disengage uh, was related to reduced uh, cortisol level. Uh, those people uh, who had difficulty disengaging reported higher cortisol level, which is the red line. And what's interesting here is the higher cortisol level were during the day, not early in the morning uh, when people get up, take a shower, brush their teeth. It's uh, later in the day. Probably when people try to uh, uh, achieve the goals that they set out to achieve and they may face constraints and then go uh, adjustment capacities in particular disengagement uh, matter later in the day. Uh, a final slide about uh, this sort of studies. Uh, we looked into immune functioning, C-reactive protein, and sample uh, of, uh, of adolescents, a uh, uh, longitudinal study uh, over a little bit more than one year, and we found that the capacity to disengage was associated with longitudinal changes in C-reactive protein. Uh, those who had difficulty uh, disengaging, uh, 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 showed twice as much increase over time in um, uh, this marker of systemic inflammation as compared to those uh, who were average and those who were able to disengage did not show any increase over time in markers of systemic infl- inflammation. Now, to the extent that high and persistent levels of C-reactive protein may contribute or put people at risk of developing uh, physical health problems down the road, like heart problems, these uh, adolescents may be at risk uh, of potentially becoming sick, uh, not uh, over the next year or two, but maybe in 20, 30, 40 years, uh, if these high levels of uh, uh, systemic inflammations are uh, being maintained. So, Putting that together is, if we look at goal disengagement and goal reengagement, uh, what these data show is disengagement reduces negative aspects of well-being, reengagement in- increases positive aspects of well-being, uh, and uh, the effects on, uh, uh, on on negative emotions seem uh, uh, to influence biological functioning and physical health. I know that other people find effects of positive emotions on physical health, I'm aware of that. Uh, All the data I have collected, I never found that. Uh, uh, And my explanation uh, here is uh, uh, that uh, uh, high levels of negative affect take a greater toll uh, on biological uh, indicators and uh, biological dysregulation as, uh, and physical health as compared to uh, low levels of positive emotions. And reviews uh, uh, in this area like by Sarah Pressman and Sheldon Cohn, sort of uh, show that positive emotions can do everything. They can be good for your health, they can be bad for your health, they can show no effects on your health. Uh, it's a uh, very complicated literature. I think literature on negative affect is much more uh, straightforward last question uh, that I want to address here what predicts goal adjustments that is important uh, because there are these reliable individual differences in people's capacities Uh, and uh, we want to find out uh, uh, the predictors on that that may also have some uh, some clinical implications how we can make it easier for people to adjust some research and theory uh, in this area, and there are only very few uh, studies uh, to my knowledge, suggest that other personality factors uh, facilitate disengagement. For example, uh, uh, the work by Lisa Aspenwall showed that, uh, that optimists uh, disengage uh, faster Uh, from unsolvable problems when there are alternatives uh, present uh, in their their environment. In addition, uh, there are theories that uh, show that self-protective coping, like uh, downward social comparisons, external attributions, positive reappraisals, that they may make it easier for a person to accept that a certain goal can no longer be attained. Uh, There's not so much data on that point, but at least uh, there is uh, a theory. What I want to show you here during the uh, last five minutes is some of our recent work on that issue uh, uh, about uh, the possibility that depressive mood uh, itself uh, can make it easier to give up on unattainable goals. So there may not be only something good about quitting, there may also be something good about depressive symptoms. Uh, Why? Because uh, it makes it easier uh, uh, to quit. Uh, It's not my theory. Uh, uh, I didn't develop this uh, this line of uh, uh, thinking uh, uh, all by myself. There is theory from uh, personality and evolutionary uh, psychology that makes exactly that uh, argument. Randy Nassi, University of Michigan, uh, is looking at uh, the evolutionary origin of mood uh, for a long time, and he uh, suggested that depressive mood may have uh, evolved in humans to cope with uh, such situations. Situations that are related to danger, loss, or wasted effort that require disengagement. And some almost uh, 40 years or 35 years ago, Eric Klinger, uh, who in my opinion wrote a landmark paper about uh, these issues about the depression disengagement cycle he suggested that when people face difficulty they try to overcome the difficulty if that is not successful he suggested that depressive mood kicks in makes it easier for a person to let go uh, of the incentive so it uh, uh, has all been written uh, 35 years ago uh, while it's often very difficult to test evolutionary hypotheses, this left us here with a testable hypothesis. We could look into longitudinal research. Do depressive symptoms make it easier to adjust un- to unattainable goals? And does this increase in goal adjustment capacities then predict reduced depression down the road? And we looked at this in uh, a longitudinal sample uh, of adolescent girls, four waves of data. When we analyzed the first three waves of data uh, and we predicted uh, uh, changes in goal disengagement capacities by baseline levels of depressive symptoms using the back depression inventory, we found that there was an increase in goal disengagement capacities, but only among those who showed high levels of depression uh, depression at baseline. Uh, So that would sort of uh, support the hypothesis, but we don't know yet whether it's adaptive. So what we did in turn then, we created some, uh, some, some scores about how much uh, does, uh, uh, did the goal disengagement capacities increase for each subject. And we subjected those scores into a regression analysis predicting uh, a depressive symptoms at 19 months, so at wave four. What did these uh, analyses show? So we predicted T4 depressive symptoms, and we controlled for all depressive symptoms experienced previously. And uh, the results showed uh, that change in goal disengagement capacities were associated with depressive symptoms six months uh, down the road. So those uh, who increased their goal disengagement capacities, they showed less depressive symptoms uh, uh, six months later. Uh, putting that together, these results are consistent with the idea uh, that depressive symptoms, depressive mood itself can make it easier uh, to adjust to unattainable goals, which in turn uh, reduces depressive symptomatology uh, uh, down uh, the road. So let me summarize here uh, Uh, with respect uh, to what I've presented uh, 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 with respect to the three questions. Yes, there are age effects of coping. As people uh, advance in age, they benefit from coping that uh, supports goal adjustment, uh, such as positive reappraisals. There are other studies about external attributions, about downward social comparisons. They show all pretty much uh, the same pattern of findings. When it comes to uh, uh, a clear definition of what goal uh, uh, adjustment is, my answer would be it involves goal disengagement, it involves goal reengagement, uh, and uh, above and beyond the specific reactions to events that people uh, show there may be something stable, some tendencies within a person uh, that people uh, apply in certain uh, situations with what we call goal uh, uh, adjustment capacities and in this regard goal disengagement capacities Uh, are beneficial for a person's health by reducing the negative emotions. Will re-engagement capacities uh, increase positive aspects of subjective well-being? We didn't really show health effects. We are still uh, looking for them. Uh, Maybe they show up a little later uh, uh, in our longitudinal studies. Finally, goal adjustment can develop in adolescence as a function of depressive symptomatology. So there are these reciprocal associations between motivation and emotions, which are find uh, particularly interesting. My final slide is about uh, uh, what needs to be done with respect to this uh, uh, area of research and uh, 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 what do we need uh, to do uh, uh, with respect to these uh, questions. Uh, I think we have to examine these reciprocal effects between emotion and motivation across the entire lifespan. Uh, 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 These effects may be uh, specific to uh, adolescents uh, uh, they may not uh, translate into old age. Uh, we need to comprehensively identify predictors of goal adjustment, in particular goal re-engagement. And finally, uh, uh, we have to examine uh, more comprehensively the biopsychological pathways to physical health. Uh, 30 seconds uh, about uh, this I- issue uh, because I'm out of time. Uh, 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 what uh, I have experienced when I got into the area of health psychology is that many of the theoretical associations do not really map the data. For example, there are many studies who don't show that cortisol really is associated with health outcomes. Uh, What we do in our laboratory now is looking at interactions between uh, biology and personality, and we find uh, that personality, uh, uh, personality processes, adaptive ones, including coping, can buffer effects of high cortisol and physical health In regard to uh, uh, what I would call clinical significance. And I think that research along these lines uh, uh, is very important for the future uh, of the field of coping because it shows uh, the importance uh, of coping processes. Thank you.